Welcome back to the Tech UK podcast. I'm your host for this month's session. My name is Venus Ali and I'm head of policy here at Tech UK. This month we're focusing on skills, the skills we learn in school, what retraining for the future looks like and also how we make sure that diversity is embedded into everything we do. Our first interview today is with Sarah Atkinson, chair of Tech UK's Skills and Diversity Council. I began by asking her about her interest and background in promoting STEM subjects in schools. Good morning, good afternoon, and thanks so much for having me. Um, I am really passionate about engaging more young girls and minorities, actually, in the STEM subjects. And it probably started about five years ago through the work that I did um, at CA Technologies, where I led the inclusion, diversity um, and social responsibility programs. And at that time, um, I was working with an organisation called the WISE Campaign, And they did a piece of research which identified that young girls, particularly those from ethnic minorities, were not seeing themselves in the type of roles that they should in terms of science, tech, engineering and maths. And they set out to try and help address, change those perceptions, help address the issue and change those perceptions. And so what they did is they um, conducted a piece of research, again, looking at how girls relate. And they developed initially a program called People Like Me, which was based on girls using adjectives to describe themselves. And it was very, very well received, um, but it was paper-based. And so... Most recently, what we've done is through the work at Tech UK, we've been partnering um, with the WISE campaign to help develop that program and actually take it digital. And so the element you're concentrating on here is really about girls. Are you saying that, you know, by the time you get into thinking about careers of, you know, perhaps 16 plus or talking about moving jobs after your first job, it's pretty much too late um, if you've if you've not really taken those STEM subjects at school. No, but that's a great point, actually. What we see is that um, in the early days, maybe of primary school, um, there's actually quite a lot of excitement and interest around those subjects. And then as girls move into secondary school, something happens, whether it's perceptions or peer pressures or lack of role models, and they don't seem as interested or they, they sometimes have a perception that it's tough, it's too difficult, not for them, it's a boys' subject. And I think that dissuades a lot of girls from going on and pursuing pursuing um, STEM-based GCSEs, A-levels, etc. But that doesn't mean that even if you didn't study those subjects, there's not a career for you um, in those, in those um, industries. That's absolutely wrong. Today, if you think every business is a digital business, it has technology at somewhere within its, um, its framework. And we need... Um, talent and skills that has an understanding and appreciation of the application of technology but doesn't need to just be a coder when you think about how much we will we we do today but we will rely on technologies that have artificial intelligence internet of things based in them we need a lot of different skills we need a lot more emotional intelligence empathy and so it's if you aren't interested in coding it doesn't mean to say there's not a career for you in in stem so in that that being the case, and I completely agree with you, is is us talking about STEM even the right thing to be doing? I mean, you know, should we be talking about STEAM? Should we be talking about how we can get more arts and design into our schools? Because that's the bit of the curriculum that's really being sort of squeezed out at the moment. 
Yeah, I think that's an interesting point, actually. And um, in some of the conversations we've had with uh, young girls, young women, actually just the phrase STEM can be quite off-putting and instantly the shutters go up. Mm. Um, So I do think that the way we talk about the future of work and careers is incredibly important. We need to be a bit more thoughtful about that. And absolutely, we need to be thinking about the other aspects, arts, et cetera, that you mentioned and helping girls and young women imagine themselves in those careers, some of which may not even exist today So a lot of it's about education and awareness, not just actually directly at the young girls and women, but potentially at parents, teachers, careers advisors, to help them imagine and learn about even not just the job description, but the types of attributes and skills that are going to be required in in the future, whether it's the the whole concept of lifelong learning, et cetera. I think that's an incredibly important um, Uh, aspect which we have to really consider when we go to market yeah and I guess I mean that's a part that maybe we've concentrated on less as an industry you know we've talked about how we engage students and how we engage girls but really parents have a huge role to play in all of this teachers like you say um as well so I mean the my skills my life program what where do you think it sort of adds value or if you could tell me a little bit about what it aims to achieve that'd be great absolutely um So My Skills, My Life is uh, a game, an online shareable game, which is aimed at girls uh, really up to about 18 years old. And then it presents to them different types of roles, scientists, technologists, etc. It's all of the roles have actually been validated by the Science Council. And what's really cool about it is that the um, quiz itself was actually road tested with over a thousand girls all around the country, 25 schools and several girl guiding groups. So we've had really good validation um, that they like it. Yeah, Uh, It's fun to engage with. And what it does is, as I said, it presents to them um, roles that they may never have thought of. It also gives them a guide on what type of education learning they may want to consider. And then they can share it which um, obviously is the ideal thing in terms of taking it more broadly. They can share it with their friends, their family, their Mm. parents, um, to give them a kind of broader understanding of, um, you know, what's out there and and where they could be headed. It comes back to this idea that if you can't see it, you can't be it. And so, I mean, I I fought a little over the sort of 18 threshold, 18-year-old threshold, but I mean, I'm going to give it a whirl because I think that's one of the interesting things as well is that, you know, no one really has that sort of career for life anymore. Um, and like you say, these sort of attributions and the skills that you have um, will be absolutely key to being able to move between sectors, particularly when, as you say, you know, digital is going to be a key component on, of practically every industry you can think of. So, I mean... One question I'd have is you talked about how girls when they're young do seem interested and are really engaged in all of these issues and then they drop off. Do you think that there's like a crunch moment, you know, a particular year group that's where things shift or can we intervene at any stage and have an impact? Yeah, I mean, I I do see the drop off is largely the transition from primary to secondary, um, but that's just really um, one point. But but I do think that there's a role that industry and in particular Tech UK members can play, and that's really to ensure that 
you have a work experience program in place. And it sounds so terribly obvious. Um, and if you think back to the Gatsby benchmarks, which really put the onus on schools to make sure that they were finding opportunities for their students to engage in industry, I think we have to open the doors and we have to bring in young students, boys and girls, to really give them a first-hand experience and insight of what it's like to work in a STEM-oriented or technology industry, how fun, how interesting, and what a difference you can make uh, mm. when you think about the application of technologies. So I think a very practical piece of advice would be if you haven't got one, think about developing a work experience program. Um, I think that's that's vital. So you talked about attributes being super important and you know the thing that actually, given that we don't know exactly what the future looks like, it'll be the attributes that you have rather than perhaps some of the harder skills that you have that are most, you know, exciting to a company that might be looking to hire. So what do you think those attributes are? Absolutely, that's a great question. I think character and resilience are going to be critical. And as Damien Hines, the Education Secretary, talked about last week, Character and resilience are what are going to make young people successful in the future. And the way to do that, I think, is to engage and get involved in things like after school clubs, volunteering, sports, um, ways of really broadening your horizons over and above just pure studies. And I think that's something which um, we're going to see a lot more of. And we need to be really encouraging young people to take part in those types of activities as well. And hopefully that's, I mean, what young people want to do. They don't want to be cooped up in a classroom, sort of, you know, rote learning all the time. It's about getting out, making those connections, you know, exploring the world as it is and how it can be as well. You'd think so. And I think the key thing there is to make sure that there's provision for it, that wherever you live in the country, you've got access to youth clubs or sports facilities or girl guiding or, or those types of activities to really broaden your horizons. And the character and resilience piece will come as part of that. Thanks, Sarah, for sharing your thoughts and insights with us. Speaking of character and resilience, next up we've got Talal Rajab, Head of Cybersecurity at Tech UK. He'll be talking to us about his plans for International Women's Day. Talal, thank you so much for joining us. So today we're here to talk about um, cyber and skills. So I wonder if you could just start by telling me a little bit about why getting um, a diversity of um, different people into cyber is important. So the cyber sector's got a, a shortage um, in terms of skills, as it is anyway. Um, so if you speak to different cyber companies around the country and ask them what their biggest challenge is, it's finding skilled professionals to join join their organisations and, and, and work on what's becoming a growing um, problem for companies across different sectors. Um, um, obviously, with 50% of the population being female, there's obviously a large pool of people who we could be bringing into the sector to help uh, plug some of these gaps. Despite that, we still only have uh, just 8% of the um, workforce, cyber workforce in the UK um, are women. Um, so that's obviously a, a sort of a big problem. Um, and um, so something that we've, we've tried to try and alleviate through different programs and initiatives that we're running. 
You mentioned uh, different programs that you're running. So one's really caught my eye called Q for the Loo. Catches a lot of eyes. Yeah. yeah. So Q for the Loo, tell me a, a little bit about what that is and, and why the name? So we would have thought Q for the Loo spoke for itself, but it seems like a lot of people are slightly uh, confused as to the name. So I can give you a bit of background. So um, the chair of our cybersecurity management committee, Sean John, who's the chief security advisor for Microsoft, um, she tells a common story of, uh, the only time she never has to queue for the loo is when she goes to a cybersecurity conference because there are so few women um, at the conference. Whereas if she, when she goes to the rugby or the football, uh, there are large queues because women attend rugby and football, but they don't attend cybersecurity conferences, uh, according to her. So she set up a, what was originally a hashtag, um, you know, just talking about the fact that there's never a queue for, for the female loos. Uh, and that grew online. A lot of people started sharing similar stories. Um, so in September, we decided, September of last year, we decided to launch an initiative called the Key for the Loo initiative, which is really just a series of events, online resources, networking opportunities uh, for women who are in the sector uh, or those who are looking to get into the sector but are maybe looking for a mentor or for a bit of guidance uh, as to how to build uh, and forge a career in cybersecurity. It kicked off with a launch event um, in September. Uh, we had about 60 uh, people attending and you know speakers from Just Eat and Semantic um, and we were told by people there that they wanted this to be a regular sort of series of events. So um, every couple of months, we'll have a queue for the Lou event. Uh, we're encouraging people to still tweet it and use the hashtag um, and really just encourage more people to come along, network and find out more about a career in cyber. I have literally heard of nothing more British than that. We're basically, <laughs> if I can get this straight, we're trying to encourage more women in tech to build a queue. That's just, I mean, that is so British. Yeah, yeah it, it, I think... For, for them, it seems like they're not fully accepted in the cyber sector until they have the queue for the loo. So, um, I mean, for myself, I, I don't like queuing for the loo, but if it <laughs> makes everybody happy, then then let's go for it. I think, I mean, I think that's a great, um, great initiative. And we've got International Women's Day just around the corner now. So I know that, you know, um, there'll be lots of events going on. But do you want to tell us, you know, you've got a chance to plug your event right now? Yeah, yeah. so obviously we're going to be uh, holding an event to coincide with um, International Women's Day. So on the 7th of March, on the Thursday beforehand, um, we'll be running uh, our next Q for the Loo event. Each of the Q for the Loo events are built around a particular entrepreneurism within the cybersecurity sector and how to grow your own business. Um, and this one, uh, which will coincide with International Women's Day, will be on investigative cyber and digital forensics. So looking at um, sort of digital forensics, um, how to do investigative cyber operations, and hear from some people, particularly women in the sector, who have led and spearheaded some of these um, investigations. That sounds great. I'll look out for it. And it's not just industry that's really making a push on this as well. I've heard that GCHQ, for example, are running whole training series, trying to get more girls interested. Yep. So GCHQ and the National Cybersecurity Centre, which is a part of GCHQ, have really been um, the front runners in this. Um, and they created the Cyber First Girls competition, which gets hundreds of girls across the country. Um, they'll run a sort of a cybersecurity exercise and a, and a competition with different teams will go away and try and come up with solutions. Um, and then the winning teams get to go off to um, some camps and, and sort of get more experience of 
of working in, in in the sector and that's you know that's really taken off it's, it's been a really successful um, program I think Steph McGovern for the BBC is one of their ambassadors for the program uh, and our very own Jacqueline de Rojas has also been a judge on the Cyber First Girls competition the next one is is coming up in April um, and yeah they get a real great diverse group of of girls from around the country competing and that's all, I mean, I guess that's part of the, the issue around sort of cyber skills. It's just about creating that buzz around it, not just for girls, but for everyone. Um, yeah. Do you think that's, I mean, that's the case that people just don't know what a career using cyber skills looks like? Yeah, I mean, so uh, DCMS published their cyber skills strategy uh, in December, just, you know, just before we ran off for Christmas. Thank you, DCMS. But in there, um, it really highlighted the, the difficulties that um, someone getting involved in cyber may have when trying to figure out what they want to do. Uh, when you think about a cybersecurity professional or, or sort of you think of hacking, you think of sort of people in hoodies, uh, sort of hunched out behind a computer or, you know, guys and girls in ponytails and T-shirts. But there are so many wide variety of different cybersecurity roles out there. You don't have to have a technical background to, get to, to be involved in cyber. Uh, you know, I did a, a history and politics degree with no sort of technical experience and I'm working in the sector myself. Um, so what we want to do and what government's uh, very keen in doing is try and showcase how there are so many different pathways that someone can take uh, to then get a career in cybersecurity. Uh, you could be an accountant and then, you know, find your way in, 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 in a cyber job. You know, you could have done maybe computer science or an engineering degree and, and find yourself in a role, but each role is a sort of equally valid. Um, but it can be increasingly difficult. Uh, and that's why within uh, DCMS's cyber skills strategy, um, they've um, proposed the creation of a cybersecurity council uh, so very similar to an engineering council or medical council, which will hopefully um, highlight and showcase the different pathways one could take to get a career in cyber. And I think that's, you know, that's a key message that we need to take away. It's, it's about creating those role models and making sure that people understand that, you know, you don't need to be a, a whiz coder stuck up in your room dedicating like 15 hours a day to sort of, you know, looking at your screen in order to get into this field. So yeah. it, sounds, it all sounds really, really exciting. And um, yeah, I mean, I would be very interested to see um, how that queue for the Lou hashtag continues to develop. Yeah, I, I imagine you get some um, really weird things on that hashtag as well yeah and if you if you, if you google q for the loo um some of the images that, that come up aren't aren't, aren't ours <laughs> but what well, I so would another hashtag not safe for work perhaps <laughs> exactly but if you are attending a, a tech conference or a cyber conference and there isn't a queue uh take take a picture hashtag it uh, and let us know um, we want to obviously encourage um more women to attend cyber conferences attend cyber events and get involved in the sector so let's keep the hashtag going there you go guys uh, send your pictures of toilets and toilet cues to talal at, at t rajab <laughs> <laughs> and now the tables are turning or should i say microphones as i'm going to be interviewed by nimi patel tech uk's policy manager for skills talent and diversity to talk about tech uk's future of work report Hi, I'm Nimi, and I'm joined by Venus, who is going to be discussing the future of work. Yeah, so I mean, I'm really keen to chat to you about Tech UK's latest report on called Preparing for Change, which is all about, you know, the future of work and what the education system needs to do to um, prepare for that. The debate around the future of work is quite bleak at the moment. Why do you think that is? I think, you know, it's it's what really get, grabs people's attention, and that is this idea that, 
you know, change is coming at like a pace and scale that we've never seen before. And the result of that is going to be robots going to come for your jobs. You know, the future is going to be 100% automated. Um, and I think, you know, there's been a lot of um, research put out there that's based on limited information and sort of uh, lots of hypotheses that are based on, um, let's say, imaginative statistics mm. um and and they are quite scaremongery if we're honest with ourselves and the media love that because the media love reporting on sort of you know the apocalypse that's coming and um, so i think you know it, it's partly bleak because there has not been a today there's not been a positive rebuttal to it and you know honestly it's the same as everything else um we as humans are scared of what we don't know um, and change uh, creates fear. And I think, you know, lots of people are capitalizing on that at the moment. How do you think we change that narrative? I think we can do it by, you know, firstly, in sort of two ways, I would say. I think the first is um, just creating a much more human um, narrative that goes against sort of what has been a very economically, hev- like an economic um, narrative to date. So it's actually talking about, okay, well, if there is automation coming, how can we make sure that that works for humans? And that could be about, you know, getting rid of like the dull, dangerous, dirty work that currently still exists today, getting robots, etc., to do that. But also freeing up humans to do what humans do best, which is, you know, empathize with one another, work creatively. So it's about getting across that human um, positive story and making sure that we're framing the debate around um, on automation in that very human way. I think that the, the second thing is that we have to recognise that there are challenges. But, you know, it shouldn't be all doom and gloom. It's about recognising the challenges so that we can mitigate against the risks. So, yeah, we know that automation will change the future of work and the future of jobs in themselves. Um, we don't know exactly what that looks like. But what we do know is that people will need new skills They'll need to be able to retrain continually through life. So rather than talking about these um, justice problems and stopping there, we need to start thinking about, you know, how do we prepare for this change? How do we make sure that not just in terms of building new institutions and frameworks, but how do we actually change the mindset of people going forward so that they can actually thrive in this new industrial age that we're going to live through? Tech UK recently launched a paper on preparing for change, how tech parents view education and the future of work. Why did you guys begin that report and what did you learn from it? Yeah, so I mean, so this is exactly, I mean, it comes to the fact that no one really knows what's going to happen. Um, but so far, the debate has been had has been very based on sort of numbers and GDP and you know how many percentage of jobs are going to be lost. So we want to take a fresh approach to this. So what we decided to do was survey tech parents, so parents working in the tech sector or in tech roles, in any sector. Now that's not to say that these guys have crystal balls that they can look into the future and tell us, you know, exactly how we need to prepare. But working in the tech sector, you do get a few insights that you might not otherwise have. And so we wanted to ask these parents through a survey that we we ran over the summer, um, you know, what do they think of the future of work? What do they think it looks like? And what do they think of the education system today? You know, so we asked parents who have kids who are currently in education today. So between the ages of five and 18. And we asked them, do they think the education system today is preparing their children for the jobs of tomorrow? 
And the findings were really interesting, actually. I think, you know, most strikingly is the fact that, um, you know, despite what education their child receives today, 90% of the parents we surveyed said that they believe that their child would have to retrain in the future. So this comes to the point that, you know, in the future, regardless of what your job is today or what your career is today or what you start off doing, you're probably going to need to retrain. Um, and I think what was really interesting to note is the fact that, you know, 64% of parents that we spoke to thought that, you know, felt very optimistic about the future job opportunities that their children will have. So only 16% reported feeling pessimistic. Now that goes against the grain of everything um, that you'd be led to believe if you read sort of the media headlines. Um, essentially, they're saying to us, yeah, we're, op we're optimistic that the future of work looks bright, but there's some challenges that we need to address. And those challenges really focused in on um, what type of things their kids were learning in school. And so, you know, what they said to us most prominently was the fact that we needed to move away just pure knowledge-based learning um, and move to more um, a, a, a curriculum that sort of nurtured skills that would be needed in the future. So skills like critical thinking, leadership, teamwork, and that can be done a variety of ways. No one is suggesting that we tear up the curriculum um, wholesale. I think if you suggest that, you'd have teachers on strike and parents, you know, writing to their MPs, etc. But there's a lot we can do with the education system as it currently stands. You know, introducing more project-based work, um, introducing more interdisciplinary lessons where you go, okay, what? how can we make sure that science and art meets in the middle and that children are, st are steeped in... Um, a solid sort of grounding in both areas rather than being asked to specialise in one or the other at a fairly young age. The other key thing that came out was um, around careers advice. So only 22% of the parents that we spoke to thought that their child's school was giving um, their children good careers advice. Now, you know, there's a lot that government can do in this space. But frankly, look, teachers are being asked to do ever more um, with a, a lower budget frankly speaking. And so really industry needs to play a much more prominent role. You know, we need to make sure that um, children and their parents understand what a career in tech could look like, all the different pathways. This is not about just, you know, going and getting a degree, but we need to talk about sort of T levels and apprenticeships and actually, um, you know, highlight all the different ways into tech. So, you know, the, the report um, looks at a lot of these aspects and we make some key recommendations um, both in terms of, you know, making sure that we highlight all the different career paths into tech, that we rebalance the curriculum to sh ensure that young people today are equipped for the jobs of tomorrow, and um, that we don't squeeze creativity out of the curriculum. I think, you know, uh, PE, art, design are all going to be important because it's all about teaching those children soft skills um, that are going to be most useful to them in the future. And I think we shouldn't lose sight of that um, you know, as we continue to worry about exams and grades. Yeah, I think sometimes schools can be quite tough, especially when they've branded things as hard skills and soft skills. It makes children who are particularly good at soft skills feel worse for not being better at hard skills. And look, I mean, you know, I, I've used it a million times already in this like interview and this chat alone, but soft skills kind of says it's not as, you know, prestigious or yes. it's not as important. Um, but 
it, that's not the truth. You know, it's it's about actually, can we zero in on the skills that make us most human? Because those are the skills that are really going to differentiate in the future and are going to be key to getting those good jobs that are going to exist. Do you think a rebranding of the hard and soft skills is imperative to the narrative? Um, I think, yeah, there's, you know, there's something there about what, you know, what hard and soft means and um, what genders are attracted to either. I think, you know, you can talk about soft skills and it can be seen to be quite feminine, perhaps. Um, So rebranding that to make sure that, you know, as we sort of try and develop a good skills base in the next generation, um, we do so in the most inclusive way possible. Uh, what you rebrand that to, I think there's a lot of suggestions out there. Um, but frankly, you know, you can call it what you want. But at the at the end of the day, it's about making sure that um, it's embedded into the curriculum at every stage. And it's not just about carving out, you know, 30 minutes for civic education here or thinking about how to be creative in one lesson. It's about making sure that, you know, creativity is embedded in physics just as much as it is in art. Um, And so that just requires, you know, a change of mindset. Your point about using industry as a way to inform parents and kids, I think that is a very worthwhile way to inform people. Yeah, I think, you know, the the fact is parents still hold a lot of sway over what their child decides to do. And it's reasonable to suggest that a lot of parents don't really understand um, a sector that is moving at such breakneck speed. You know, new jobs are being created um, every sort of year. I think, you know, a lot of people who um, grew up without the technology that is now so fundamental to -to day-to-day living, you know, perhaps don't really realise all the opportunity that exists out there. Now, if they don't realise that themselves, how can they possibly... um, inform their children and so I think you know it's firstly about helping to educate parents but also industry should go direct into schools there's something that you know traditional sectors have done for years whether that's through speaking at different assemblies or providing lesson plans for parents using sort of example from the uh, automotive industry or farmer or whatever it might be it's about actually how do we as a sector engage with schools better now that's been made far much harder um with the sort of academization of schools there's something like twenty five thousand schools out there so how do you make sure that you hit all the schools whilst leaving no one behind that's a huge challenge and there clearly is a role for government there in terms of coordinating but i think you know industry really needs to step up because frankly you know others have said it in this podcast um there is a skills gap and it's business that suffers and the economy that suffers if we don't address it and close it. So it's in their own interest to be far more active and far more um, encouraging about all of this stuff. Thanks, Nimi, for posing those questions and giving me a bit of a grilling. I'd encourage you all to visit the Tech UK website and download the Future of Work report. Next up, we've got Tech UK's head of public sector and failed actor, Henry Rex, talking about how we can overcome the public sector's skill gap. Henry, thank you so much for joining me today in my little podcast uh, bubble, shall we call it? now, I've got to ask before we kick off, did you have a history in like amateur dramatics? Because your um your warm up was great. Was it 
Well, thank you, Venus. I think my uh, career in dramatics was actually tragically cut short after uh, in year four when I auditioned for the role of Harry in the rather well-known Universal series Harry Potter um, <laughs> and unfortunately wasn't cast, which I think was both a loss to me personally, but also to the franchise. And to the nation. Well, indeed. I mean, wouldn't I mean, it the world, been, why yeah, stop there? Quite. Well, I mean, we could spend ages talking about um, your sort of dramatic um, past. Let's. Um, But no, let's not. Let's talk digital skills. So we've been talking to others um, about the skill shortage in in the UK, but perhaps, I mean, more accurately, it would be to say across, um, you know, the EU or even the world. And so, you know, but this, so far we've talked about how there's a skill shortage uh, for industry, but do you see that sort of skills gap reflected in the public sector as well? So civil service, but also, you know, teachers and healthcare workers, et cetera? Uh, I mean, to an extent, yes. I mean, as with the Civil, uh, with the economy, so with the civil service, which is, of course, uh, designed to reflect the society it serves. But there are certain challenges that I think are quite particular to the public sector. Uh, demand seems to be rising for, for a range of public services. You know, uh, In the news quite a lot recently has been the uh, increased uh, demand on police, both for traditional things, but also for, you know, police demand is rising for even, you know, not necessarily criminal issues. Um, an aging population is, of course, uh, putting more and more pressure on the health service and on local authorities and social care um, organisations as well. And not only is demand rising, but also I think expectations are rising as well when it comes to interacting with uh, public services, whatever they may be. You know, obviously, services like Netflix or Amazon Prime or Deliveroo or Uber Eats, to name but a few, uh, show that when it comes to uh, engaging with any sort of service delivery, uh, citizens expect it to be um, a very easy digital public contact sort of digital point of contact uh, experience, um, a lot of convenience, uh, instant feedback. Uh, instant delivery and as advances as those advances in the digital economy march on the public sector must prepare itself for higher expectations uh, when it comes to level of service convenience ease of contact etc and that is being addressed i mean the digital data and technology profession has been set up basically to do that is that right yeah i mean it's been set up to you know to help ensure that government retains the skills and capabilities in order to digitise services and to make sure that uh, the UK is at the forefront in terms of a digitally transformed uh, government. And when it, you know, really, I think it's almost success is when we stop talking about digitally transformed government and it just becomes uh, more and more part of business as usual. When we can do everything via an app. Well, almost everything. Well, almost everything. So, I mean, I'd, I'd really like to speak to you about the new um, partnership that Tech UK has just um, recently launched with the Digital Data and Technology Fast Stream specifically, um, and that is being sponsored by the Chief Digital and Information Officer, Jackie Wright. Tech Connect, tell me a little bit about that. What does that actually mean, look like, and what is, what is it hoping to achieve? So in terms of the mechanics of the programme, it's a 12-week 
program uh, consisting of 19 civil servants, 19 professionals from industry uh, divided up into uh, six groups, uh, half each, and each group uh, in the first day of the program uh, identified a public sector challenge that they would like to address and they're going to spend the next 12 weeks uh, working closely together and trying to design solutions to tackle those challenges. Uh, each group has uh, a sponsor from industry and a sponsor from government, so someone a bit more established in their career who's been working on these types of challenges before, who can just give them advice as and when needed. And ultimately, the program ends with a finale day uh, just after Easter, where the groups will present their solutions to a panel of judges composed both of industry and government, and a winner will be elected. And Will they get a certificate? That is the question on everyone's lips, I'm sure, who's listening to this. They will definitely get a certificate. They have my word. So this is in its pilot year. So what's what's the ambition here? What's the scale you hope to achieve with this? Um, well, ultimately, of course, we you know we hope it's going to be a very successful pilot year. Um, and then, if so, we will you know digest feedback you know from from the current participants. You know, we want to um, iterate as we go. You know, adopting good agile principles. Um, so we will digest that feedback and hopefully scale this to a slightly bigger pool of participants next year. And, you know, obviously we would ultimately love it to become a bit of a fixture in, in, the, uh, in the calendar. The sky is the limit. Henry, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. I cannot wait to hear from these fast dreamers and early career professionals themselves. I'm sure we're going to try and get them in at some point to talk to us. Thank you, Henry, so much. Thank you, Venus. And finally, like the hidden bonus track on a CD for any of you old enough to remember the days before Spotify, we have an interview with Tech UK president Jacqueline de Rojas with questions from Abby Pearson, a very inspiring young woman who's just finished her second stint of work experience here at Tech UK. That's character and resilience right there. Hello, I am Abby Pearson and I'm returning from my work experience in the summer where I was looking at women within tech. So I am currently doing an EPQ, which is an extended project qualification, I'm adding on to my A-levels, and the title is What are the principal factors which contribute to the lack of women in tech? So I am lucky enough to be here to be talking to Jacqueline on this topic. And my name is Jacqueline de Rojas, and I am the president of Tech UK. Okay, so we'll get started. So... As a result of doing my EPQ, I've realised that it is, it is evident that stereotypes and perceptions are reasoning for the lack of women entering the sector. So I'd like to know what your views on this and how do you think this could maybe be improved? I think women in tech as a general subject is super interesting because the needle hasn't moved in terms of how many women are in the sector for a very long time. And if it does move, it moves slowly. And for sure... Part of that is that we don't have enough role models in technology. And for that reason, I think we probably need to change the narrative. If we're going to change the world, we need to change the narrative. And it seems to me that we have to create more accessibility and find a way to land that message 
for women and for girls at a younger age. Yeah. So do you think going into schools would help and kind of encouraging, like you said, children at a very young age? I certainly think that we need moments of inspiration and we need people who give us moments of inspiration. And it doesn't have to be a long moment, but it might be someone who comes in and might be, I don't know, someone who's a really cool technology teacher, or it might just be someone who's not in tech, but who has adopted technology in a really cool way um, that inspires young girls to think that could be something I could really make a difference with. So maybe something causal as well. You know, the idea that you could change the world or... Yeah, because um, because due to my research, I've realised that it's also to do with teachers as well. Yeah. So I think teachers need to inspire young children as well. And I think the teachers don't know enough about the technology sector. So I think that could be improved as well. I think it could. And I think taking teachers out of the classroom and into business yeah. just for a really short burst of time could really make a difference in terms of how they're inspired and then how they inspire. Yeah, definitely. Um, so as a result of my um, EPQ, I've also realised that retention of women within the sector is also a huge factor. So um, do you believe the gender pay gap influences this? The gender pay gap has really exploded the myth around equality. And I mean that by saying if it's done anything, what it's done is it's certainly shone a light on where the power is and where the money is in roles inside industry. And I think that transparency has really, really changed how women are rewarded and valued. That certainly has made yeah. a difference to the landscape. Okay, that's interesting. So do you um, think this will improve over the next few years? I think where you've seen it on the BBC as an example, where newscasters are voting with their feet and saying, I'm not going to work here yeah. unless I'm paid the same as my male counterpart. And I think that's okay because yeah. when you start to see people voting with their feet, then stuff happens. Yeah, definitely. And that transparency has made a difference because, you know, in Sweden, for example, all salaries are open and people can see what everyone else is earning and, and it's changed things. So does transparency matter? I think the answer to that is absolutely yes. Yeah, and I've also realised that um, women starting families is a huge issue, issue well, as well. So do you believe this can be changed? Because I think a lot of women feel when they come back, they can't go back into the role they were in. And I also think that companies aren't flexible with timings and obviously um, mums aren't always there if they have commitments. So we have the technology to enable work to be wherever you are. Yeah. So certainly compared to when I started out in technology you had to actually go to work to do work and now that is not the case so I think the culture of employers and leaders inside businesses need to rethink the culture of work and how they measure productivity so that working parents not just mums but working parents have that degree of flexibility I think it is harder for working mums to get back into technology and into work in general because a number of reasons actually the first, the number one reason is probably confidence oh yeah definitely. head goes down pretty fast because you think that you you're being left behind because tech moves at such a pace so we have a duty to perhaps keep them in touch with what's going on in the world of tech so that we can get them back into the industry really fast I also think that 
we need to find support networks for, for women, talking to other women, mm -hmm. so that that becomes a big uh, opportunity for them to stay connected. Okay, so how do you think you could accelerate your career five years down the line? I think for women particularly, it is so important to find someone that you can use and leverage as a mentor. And when I say that, um, perhaps that's about role models. And I firmly believe you are a role model whether you choose to be or not. So your behavior as a leader really matters. And part of being a leader is to reach out the hand of generosity to other women who are either coming up in the organization or even you know peer-to-peer -peer mentoring as well. So I think two aspects of this. One is, as a leader, reach out the hand of generosity. Even if it's just five minutes, you don't have to have a formal mentoring relationship. But also, if you are a woman wanting to get somewhere in your career, then go find someone mm -hmm. that inspires you or who you'd like to learn something from and ask them if they would mentor you for a short period of time. It really makes a big difference. Yeah, I think that's quite an interesting point. I think women need to realise that within an organisation. One plus one equals 11. <laughs> So that brings us to the end of this month's whirlwind journey through the landscape of all things skills. Thanks so much to all our guests for their time and insights. We hope you found it interesting and enlightening to listen to. But the conversation doesn't have to stop here. You can visit our website to find out more about our skills, talent and diversity programme or just drop me a line at venus.ali at techuk.org to keep talking. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>